Hello, and welcome to Technology and Space, where we talk about the science, technology, history, and business of space exploration and commercialization. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Ben Pring, co-author of Monster, a tough love letter on taming the machines that rule our jobs, lives, and future, published March 16, 2021, today by Wiley. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks, Chris. Great to be with you. So first, um, how did you get into studying this subject and, and writing a book about it? <laughs> well, I've been a, a tech uh, analyst all my career, more years than I care to remember now. Um, worked for Gartner for many years, and I've been working for Cognizant, which is a big technology consulting company for 10 years now. I set up this group called the Center for the Future of Work. Mm -hmm. So we've written books, uh, a couple of other books about leading-edge um, technology in the last few years. We wrote a book back in uh, 2014 mm -hmm. all about what's sort of come to be known now as the digital fingerprint, you know, all the, all the code that's created by every interaction that you have, which is sort of well understood now, wasn't very well understood uh, a few years ago. Then we wrote a book in 2017 about the rise of AI and how important that was going to be. And again, that's kind of common knowledge now, but a few years ago, it wasn't really as, as, um, as obvious. Mm -hmm. And so this new book, Monster, is really taking a slightly different look at it, uh, looking at these sort of leading edge technologies and how perhaps they're going a little bit off off the rails, mm -hmm. if you like. Okay. Some of the, the things that we have been evangelizing and, and sort of talking about the promise and the benefit and the upside of that, we can begin to see uh, some of the downsides. And, and rather than kind of running away from those downsides and that dark side, if you like, we thought it behooved us as people who had been, you know, telling this story for, for some time uh, mm -hmm. to kind of dig into this and to try and address where things seem to be going a little bit wrong to make sure we get it back on track. Mm -hmm. So, so a few of the things I noticed in re going through the, the book material was, um, you know, you talk about people's concerns about surveillance, mm. losing their jobs to automation, um, sort of the, uh, like you said, that the, the data fingerprints that people leave, you know, how, how is that being used? Again, that goes into the surveillance. Yeah. Is the book geared, who, who is the book geared towards? It's really geared for anybody who loves technology. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we start off by saying we love technology and we call the book a tough, tough love letter to technology. We love technology. I'm sure most people listening to this now, watching this now, love technology. We know how positive, how powerful it's been. We can see how it's contributed to economic growth and job security and, you know, just the world becoming better in, in, in many aspects. Mm -hmm. But we can also, if we're honest and, and we're not kind of just Pollyannish about it and we mm -hmm. we don't sort of try to just tell one side of the story, uh, see that there are things, like you say, where, you know, it is more uh, questionable what's going on. You know, mm -hmm. that data fingerprint, that's the key to personalize an experience for you online. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you, you we know you like this book. You, you're going to mm -hmm. like this book. And that's kind of benign, and we all get that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the flip side of that, as you say, is that uh, people can basically track us and they can mm -hmm. surveil us. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think we've got to think about that. So really, 
the reader, anybody who's thinking about these things, anybody who, again, feels a personal, a, a corporate, mm-hmm. a, a societal responsibility to to steer into these issues rather than kind of run, run away from them. Mm-hmm. And I noticed also that uh, apart from just laying out the, the dangers and concerns, you also have steps forward, um, ways in which to mitigate the problem. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Or sure, the yeah. Yeah, no, we have a, a range of sort of recommendations, things that we, we'd like to see. And, and certainly there's sort of provoca- pro- provocations, if you like, to try and make people think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, no, we felt it was very important for us as authors. This isn't kind of just us moaning and bitching and mm-hmm. shaking our fist at stuff and saying, oh, my God, it was back, you know, better back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> Again, it was us trying to, to acknowledge the reality of what's going on Mm-hmm. And 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 present some ideas about how we can sort of get back on top of this tame the monster, and they really kind of range from what you might think of more as sort of attitudinal things, soft things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we call out that we should forget, we shouldn't forget the golden rule, which we seem to have forgotten online. Mm-hmm. You know, we do things online now behind a cloak of anonymity that we wouldn't do in the real world. And, you know, the golden rule, treat others as you'd like to be treated yourself. Mm-hmm. We sort of, you know, society, individuals have sort of forgotten that. So there are soft things like that, mm-hmm. cultural, attitudinal things, but then there are very hard legislative things. Like we, we're calling for the repeal of Section 230. Uh, we're calling for a age ban on the use of social media. Mm-hmm. So under 18 shouldn't be on social media, we believe. Mm-hmm. We're calling for the establishment of what we call a federal trade, uh, sorry, <laughs> federal technology administration right. that supersedes and overrides the FCC and the FTC, mm-hmm. both of which, uh, for people who know the charters of those organizations don't really have a charter to look at this sort of technology in this sort of detail. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're trying to uh, have a kind of manifesto-based approach to it, some ideas, big-picture mm-hmm. ideas, but then undergird that with some very real recommendations. How would you um, – so, obviously, in tech, there's a huge uh, group or crowd that's that loves tech because of anonymity and because – it's a free for all. And, um, you know, yeah. the, the rules you propose go contrary, you know, run contrary to what a lot of them want, you know, which is restrictions on what can be said, who's online. How would you how would you address that? Well, anonymity was was a, a key element of the growth of the Internet in the first place. And we mm-hmm. freely acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that served that first 25 years or so of the development of the internet pretty well. I mean, it's a key element of why uh, the internet has become what it is. But we can also see, you know, let's take a time out after 25 years, Mm -hmm. that that anonymity, the the downside of that is that it's allowing trolling at an individual level. It's allowing fake news at a, a societal level. And those things, and that anonymity is now undermining, it's undermining people's, uh, psychology, you know, addiction, mm-hmm. um, body dysmorphia, the fact that anybody can say anything horrible about anybody else under this cloak. We can see what's happened in the sort of political sphere. 
people going down the kind of the rabbit hole of a of an algorithmically driven echo chamber and landing up in some crazy ideas which then burst out into the real world you know we saw that recently in in washington so mm -hmm. we think that the notion of free speech which of course we support and completely support is, is central but you have to own your free speech. Mm -hmm. You know, when you go into the physical public sphere, you own that. You are who you are, and, and people can see who you are, either kind of at a micro level or in a you know sort of in, in a um, in a legal sense, we can see who you are. Mm -hmm. And we think we need to take that philosophy, which has served mankind. You know, pretty well for a few thousand years mm -hmm. we need to bring that into this online world because frankly the the libertarian uh free-for-all laissez-faire uh you know back off kind of model mm -hmm. uh, it just doesn't scale anymore we can mm -hmm. see uh that we've got to create rules of the road if you like for the information superhighway mm -hmm. uh and one of them is one of the central ones is is I don't think we can sustain this notion of anonymity anymore. Mm -hmm. How about, uh, is it possible to have um, sort of two um, two worlds where you have the free-for-all, you know, the, the lays of hair, and you have a controlled environment where people can sort of choose where they want to be? Well, uh, I, I think, again, that's sort of the underlying philosophy of what we've tried so far. And, and again, we see the downsides of that. So I don't think we can, uh, in essence, create a two-speed internet, mm. one kind of model, you know, the official internet, and then the dark web. Mm -hmm. I, I think we've got to clean up the whole thing, frankly. Hmm. Okay. Um, so, you know, one of the things I focus on in this podcast is space exploration, space te yeah. technology. So one of the questions I have about automation taking over jobs is, how that applies to sort of um, graduate level work or engineering work, you know, the yeah. more cerebral, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. No, we, I mean, th that was really in a way what we addressed in some detail in our last book, what, which was called what to do when machines do everything. Mm -hmm. And it was exactly this central idea of the, the role of automation and this, um, you know, very real concern that people have got about, you know, automation taking human labor away from uh, from us all. Um, I think the, 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 it's an interesting way you phrase that question, Chris. And I think, again, probably for everybody who's listening to this now, watching this now, who's interested, interested in leading edge things, leading edge tech things, leading edge, you know, particularly very, you know, leading edge stuff like space exploration and the next kind of chapter of that. I think the simple truth is that probably the vast majority of that audience mm -hmm. is to a degree technical already. Mm -hmm. uh, they're probably, uh, I mean, I don't want to <laughs> mischaracterize your audience, but they're probably kind of math-centric people, people who've gone up STEM-based kind of um, uh, educational routes and are now working, you know, broadly in a kind of stem related field mm -hmm. and i think the simple truth is for those people there has never been a better time to be alive mm -hmm. and automation is not something that's going to replace any of those people it's going to be a tool to allow them to do the next level of whatever it is they're interested in i mean automation technology is going to be and robotics and ai and quantum and everything like that is going to be hugely central to building 
the world that we've seen in science fiction movies, and I'm sure you love, I love Star Trek, you know, live long and prosper, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. that, that's all completely going to be enhanced and taken to the next level through a lot of this kind of automation technology. Mm-hmm. The real issue, I think, uh, and it's interesting because it sort of bubbles up in the media a lot, mm-hmm. journalists, politician, politicians, policy people, is that they are typically not math people. Mm-hmm. They are typically more liberal arts kind of people who have not gone up in that STEM world. And the real issue in automation is what should the liberal art majors do mm-hmm. about automation? Because their jobs are much more under real threats mm-hmm. from this technology than the techie people. The techie people are going to be fine. Mm-hmm. It's the philosophers and English majors and historians and classicists mm-hmm. who are, uh, and they're typically the journalists. They're typically the politicians. They really feel this fear, mm-hmm. I think, much more than the, the techie nerdy people. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, that's a, that, and that's a very real question. I mean, think about journalism as one example. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the UK where I come from, although I live here in the States now, I think it's, it's a crazy high number. I mean, journalism as a profession has sort of collapsed in the last 20, 30 years as a result of the internet in a way mm-hmm. and the migration of ad, ad um, spending online Mm -hmm. but the the uk is still graduating about thirty five thousand journalists from its universities every year Hmm. wow and and so if you think about that imbalance that's a crazy imbalance and those people uh they they're not going to find a job in journalism because again for you know many of your listeners and watchers will know a lot of journalism is using automated based writing software now Mm-hmm. So to create a story, a lot of sports stories are created by automation-based software. And if you're following things like GPT-3 closely, mm-hmm. you'll know that that, um, that software can write, you know, a, a, a passage, a paragraph, a, mm-hmm. a whole long article that Alan Turing wouldn't be able to distinguish between <laughs> whether it was a machine or a person. Right. So the question of that automation question, I think, is more real outside really of this audience of people who are using technology to make the things you know that we've dreamt of for many years really come true mm-hmm. i'm speaking with ben pring co-author of monster a tough love letter on taming the machines that rule our jobs lives and future you can find more information on his work at cognizant.com forward slash future tech of tech work if you like this podcast technology and space so far please subscribe If you want daily book suggestions for new science, technology, and space, check out my website, technologyandspace.com. If you're looking for new military and general history information and books, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com, my YouTube channel, War Scholar, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you're looking for new fiction and nonfiction books on sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, and more, Please check out my YouTube channel, Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd, my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews, and my webpage, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Now back to the podcast. So let me throw an example at you um, that maybe straddles the seam. Um, So I have a friend who's a radiologist, a doctor, you you know, uses imaging software. He he believes that in 15 years, 
radiologists aren't going to be needed because AI can pretty much read x-rays and images yeah. sufficiently well enough, you know, and that's yeah. a, that's a, you know, scientific sort of endeavor. So what would you yeah. say to that? No, there's, there's a degree of truth in that, although that fear in medical fields has been around for a while and it hasn't really come true. Hmm. Um, but I think, again, this is going to be the notion, you know, in lots of jobs, including technolo technology jobs, is, yes, there are going to be elements, tasks, if you like, mm -hmm. that become increasingly automated away. But I think the role of a radiologist, the skill of a radiologist, the ability for the radiologist to do new things, not just sort of be in one box, and that's the only box, I think that's going to outrun the technology for a long period of time. And then, and then the other issue, of course, is that the the growth of that technology, the deployment of that technology, the availability of that technology is potentially, and, and this is the best case scenario, going to allow that radiologist, rather than seeing six people a day, mm -hmm. to see 60 people a day. Mm -hmm. And to spread that technology, if you like, into a into a wider you know area, mm -hmm. uh, not just in uh, the liberal kind of elites of the coasts and um, you know expensive centres like that, but to spread healthcare more broadly into underserved parts of America and the world. So mm -hmm. I think if you if you if you constrain that radiologist's job into a very tight box and don't think about the expansion of that box, then you can come very easily to a scenario in which that box becomes replaced increasingly by the technology. But I think what people miss frequently is that the radiologist is going to expand the box using the technology, and ultimately, you know, that radiologist's job will be different, but mm -hmm. I think we'll still be here for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. It makes me wonder, so again, I, I, with medicine, there are, in this example, they're graduating too many people. You know, I agree with what you say. You know, you can do different things, but there are also too many radiologists. So just thinking in the future, how many different new jobs can be created that, that utilize people using their minds in, in, in these ways? Yeah. You know? Well, again, I think that's... Uh, um... The, something that the pessimists and the perhaps the dystopians sort of miss a little bit, certainly in our perspective, is that sense that uh, the technology, automation technology, machine learning technology can only take jobs away from humans, misses the other side of the equation, which is going to create lots of new jobs and extend new jobs and, and new work and new tasks for humans. Mm -hmm. We've done a series of reports at the Center for the Future of Work in the last few years called Jobs of the Future. We did a, a first report called 21 Jobs of the Future. We've done 21 more Jobs of the Future. We've done 21 Marketing Jobs of the Future, 21 HR Jobs of the Future. Mm -hmm. you know, so we're coming up on 100 new jobs that we've imagined, mm -hmm. and we've written them all in the form of job descriptions to sort of take them from the, the theoretical into the practical that are, you know, somebody might be hiring against that job description. Mm -hmm. So we can think of lots of new jobs that uh, have emerged since we've been thinking about this, I mean, a lot of the kind of things that we dreamt of are coming real now. Uh, one would be something that we thought up of a few years ago called an algorithm auditor. 
the notion that you know we don't want to live in a black box world where the algorithm approves your mortgage but rejects mine and the company who's using that algorithm can't tell you why you've been rejected or why you've been approved mm -hmm. so the notion of having an audit function on top of an algorithm that's a new job and we you know there are companies that are hiring that type of job right now mm. so we think that we're you know the the ultimate survivability of the human race is is our curiosity mm -hmm. our desire to kind of to see around the corner what's around the river bend i mean i think that's a motivating factor in the in the desire to push out into outer, outer orbit and into space i mean mm -hmm. uh that's that fundamental underlying curiosity is what's driving Bezos and Musk and others to want to, you know, to, to, to go to the moon and to Mars because they have a, you know, insatiable curiosity. And that mm -hmm. curiosity at a more kind of mundane, practical, uh, <laughs> earthbound level, that's how new work is created. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, ultimately, the, the, the biggest sort of driver of, um, of innovation, as we all know, is necessity. Mm -hmm. So if we can sense that human work is being automated, we'll have the fundamental motivation and desire to create new work, we think. Yeah. So let me um, address or so you I think in the book, you also mentioned um, universal wealth or universal income. Um, I think I, I, I'm messing up the term, but, um, you know, basically, I think it's an income, a minimum income for each person. Uh, I, am I getting that right? Well, yeah. So, yeah, the phrase that uh, people might have heard is UBI, Universal Basic Income. Mm -hmm. And uh, Andrew Yang, who ran on the uh, in the Democratic um, uh, race ahead uh, of the presidential election, he that was a key uh, plank of his sort of platform. Um, mm -hmm. We talk about that a little bit. We're not huge fans of UBI, to be honest with you, Chris. We're that's not something we're advocating, but it's certainly an idea that's floating out there, mm -hmm. and some people um, are advocates for it. We, we think, frankly, that UBI, in a way, has sort of been tried in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Norway and Saudi Arabia as examples, because of their huge oil wealth mm -hmm. in the last 40 or 50 years, have basically had a form of UBI. Mm -hmm. um, the, the state has basically been, uh, you know, uh, offering out dividends from that oil petro wealth mm -hmm. to fund uh, people through the dole as as i'd call it you know um uh, unemployment payments mm -hmm. and that hasn't frankly got a great track record in those countries um uh, there are a lot of critics of that uh, in those countries where they've seen what that's done to a generation of, of kids who've sort of lost motivation, mm -hmm. haven't wanted to get out of bed in, morning, in the morning, and haven't ended up in a particularly happy place as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Alcoholism levels in those, um, in, in certainly in Norway, are off the charts. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, without getting too sort of uh, political about it, I think you can see some of the sort of disenfranchised youth in in the middle east mm -hmm. uh you know that's had geopolitical implications obviously um in america and elsewhere in the last uh, couple of decades so uh you know there's there's certainly some argument to be made around ubi mm -hmm. it's not one we're particularly um you know positive about and it's only one we sort of touch on marginally in our book okay i brought it up because it brought to mind sort of again a pessimistic idea of with all this automation, you have the rich 
you know, maybe going up into space, living in space, and everyone else living in squalor on the Earth, you know, getting a little futuristic well, sci-fi. It, yeah, there's a, that great uh, Matt Damon movie, Elysium, mm. people will know that's kind of basically the idea of that. And mm-hmm. yeah, no, I mean, that is something that we talk about, this um, this separating of kind of the digital winners from the digital laggards. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you live in a zip code full of code now, life's probably never been better. You know, you're, you're living your best life. Um, you look at the valuations of all the big tech companies in the last last year or so it's sort of extraordinary and if you live in a zip code you know not full of code a kind of analog town um then yeah you have fallen behind you've fallen sort of by the wayside and that again without getting overly political about it i think you can clearly kind of see where a lot of the animus in the political sphere in the last few years has come from people who feel excluded left behind forgotten about um, are sort of rising up and, you know, understandably saying, you know, what about us? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so so uh, those societal issue, issues, that sort of separation of, of winners and, and, and losers, the K-shaped recovery, as people are talking about the economic kind of recovery in, in the Western world at the moment, you know, if you have that digital channel to market, if you've got a strong digital online presence, you're probably doing very well. You're, you're, that, that's the part of the K you're on. And if you're kind of a old line retailer, you know, the, that, that's the shape of your recovery. So mm-hmm. it is a very real issue. And this, this sort of symbiosis now between big tech and big money, I think, again, for people who love tech but don't want to see tech take society off the rails, mm-hmm. again, I think this is something we need to kind of grapple with. And I think in your book you also mentioned the idea of D7 replacing G7. Is that – Yeah. Can, can you yeah. touch on that? Where, where would the data – is it data that it stands for, the D? Yeah, d- d- digital, digital 7. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, if you think about the G7, that was sort of created in the post-Second World, World War era. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sort of represented power as it existed in the world in 1946, 1947. Mm-hmm. But if you were kind of to recraft that now in 2021, mm-hmm. I mean, would you, <laughs> no disrespect, but would you have Canada in that? Would you have France in that? I mean, it's questionable. You probably wouldn't. Mm-hmm. But would you have China in that? Would you have India in that? Mm-hmm. Would you have Facebook in that? <laughs> uh, maybe you would. So um, the G7 is sort of trying to hold on to power. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a way, power has sort of slipped away from many of those countries. If you look at the top 20 technology companies in the world by market capitalization, none of them are European. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet Europe is a, a central part of the G7. So again, that was just a little mental exercise to say that because of the rise of, of digital technology and, and that explosion of wealth, mm-hmm. with that wealth comes power. And in a way, if you sort of zoom out, you know, and, and look at the world as you're doing in your uh, your virtual backdrop there, yeah. uh, you know, the world as you'd see it today doesn't look quite as the world uh, as it was in 1946. And we still have the sort of infrastructural pillars of the world mm-hmm. based on that old post-Second uh, World War model. So what about the strength of... Um... Western countries, the sort of the legal, the strength of their legal systems where you can feel more comfortable, the contracts will be honored and 
and governments won't do something funny to your business, which I think is still some of the fear in China that people have. Yeah, again, this is something we talk about in the book quite a bit, this notion of the splinternet, as it's being called. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that the original internet, in essence, an American internet, is now is changing and it's splintering into a kind of European GDPR-driven internet where the rules of that road, that rules of that information superhighway are quite different to the rules in America. Mm-hmm. And then clearly the, the, the Chinese-based internet, which is, again, very, very different from um, what Europeans are experiencing and, and Americans are experiencing. So, yeah, I mean, again, part of the strength and the reason for the growth of the internet in the last 25 years mm-hmm. and the fact it could spread all around the world was because it was very free, it was very open, mm-hmm. it was, as we were talking about earlier on, very laissez-faire, very few rules. But now it's being so central to, to growth and to opportunity and to security and to the future, mm-hmm. um, understandably, different uh, territories, different uh regulatory frameworks are, are sort of becoming more and more important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this becomes an issue, you know, for big companies like Cognizant and uh, any big multinational organization that anybody, again, listening or watching might be working in, mm-hmm. because you're basically going to have to run three different policies mm-hmm. within your you know, international portfolio of business. You're going to have to follow rules of the road for Europe and then different rules in China, that's going to be very complicated. It's going to certainly um, produce a, a field day for lawyers. They're not, they're not going to be automated uh-huh. away soon. <laughs> so it seems interesting that um, this, the digital world, the cyber world, is still very grounded in sort of geography, you know, where your infrastructure is located, you know, the actual people and, and legal systems, like which country you're in. It's It's still very... I, I don't. That's more a comment than a question. Um, yeah. I don't know. If no, I agree. I, I, again, and I think that's the tension that you're seeing in a way. Again, the sort of utopian idea of the internet and the internet philosophers of that early era was that you know virtual space was going to kind of replace physical space, but uh, physical space, geography, place, terroir, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. is fighting back. And um, uh, again, I think. This explains a lot of the tensions, uh, geopolitical tensions, societal tensions. I mean, again, think about tax, not a very interesting subject to talk about, but mm-hmm. um, but the tax frameworks in different countries are sort of rubbing up against the tax frameworks for the Internet. And, mm-hmm. um, again, explains why uh, we were trying to, support the the fledgling internet and the fledgling internet providers of a generation ago mm-hmm. but now the big you know digital behemoths pay very little tax anywhere around the world and mm-hmm. sort of float around and make huge revenues and huge profits but don't really contribute in the way that a, a business in a main street or a business in a mall has to do so that's all going to be worked out Mm-hmm. But the in in the working out of that's going to be a lot of turbulence and a lot of tension. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Ben Pring, co-author of Monster, a tough love letter on taming the machines that rule our jobs, lives, and future. You can find more information on his work at cognizant.com forward slash future tech of tech work. If you like this podcast, technology and space so far, please subscribe. 
If you want daily book suggestions for new science, technology, and space, check out my YouTube channel, Spacewalks Money Talks, my podcast, Technology in Space, and my website, technologyinspace.com. If you're looking for new military and general history information and books, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com, my YouTube channel, Warscholar, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you're looking for new fiction and nonfiction books on sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, and more, please check out my YouTube channel, Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd, my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews, and my webpage, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Now back to the podcast. So let me ask about um, sort of, uh, and I, it's not, I don't think you mentioned it in this book, but you did send me the the 21 places of the future, I yeah. think it's titled and outer space was one. And it mentioned, you know, tourism. Yeah. And I'm also wondering about, you know, asteroid mining, which is well in the future. Yeah. But how about, um, is there any mirror between the digital centers and where space, space activities would, would come from on the earth? Yeah. No, we, we, yeah. So that report 21 places of the future sort of looks now, in this post post COVID era, at some, you know, where are going to be the new growth areas? Uh, you know, beyond Silicon Valley, beyond New York, beyond London, where are going to be the new growth areas? And yeah, we called out space as as, as a place of the future mm. um, because I think it's it is very easy and very appropriate, I think, to draw the sort of parallel between the explorers of the of the 16th century mm-hmm. uh venturing out from london and and amsterdam and and uh cadiz and spain mm-hmm. into the new world and and finding places that eventually became new york mm-hmm. or boston or hong kong or sydney and really where we are now with with space exploration you know 50 50 years plus after Neil Armstrong kind of stood on the moon. We're still uh, just edging out now, really, you know, to, to take the next big step. And um, again, if you sort of relate that to digitization, clearly two of the key players in this, you know, akin really are modern day kings, modern day royalty mm-hmm. in the way that the, you know, Spanish and English kings and queens funded Columbus and Raleigh and Drake and all these people. Well, that's, um, uh, you know, Musk and and um, Bezos are funding this next wave of exploration, and mm-hmm. and in the process of doing that, in the course of you know clearly not the next couple of years, but the next couple of decades, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be incredible. It's going to be an extraordinary period in which we begin to uh, create a huge range of new jobs, mm-hmm. potentially huge new wealth. And you mentioned about you know. Uh, asteroid mining i think mm. ted cruz said he thought that the world's first trillionaire would make his trillions <laughs> or her trillions in space doing exactly that so it's a kind of crazy idea but um no more crazy than columbus setting off from spain and and uh you know eventually uh, <laughs> uh, the united states happening mm-hmm. so it's interesting so with the digital world um sort of the barriers of entry I think are a lot lower for someone to, or had been, you know, for someone to get involved in the digital economy, whereas contrasting that with space, which requires, you know, billionaires 
putting their money forward to make it happen. So I'm just curious about the um, sort of the comparison and contrast between these two economies, these two types of economic activities. Yeah, no, it's a great point. No, I mean, everybody, well, most people have now got the means of production Mm -hmm. physically in their own hands. You know, you don't need to go to a factory. You don't need to go to a city. You can do it in your basement, you know. Um, And so that's for 20 of the places of the future. That's very true. For this place of the future, no, you're absolutely right. This is still very capital intensive, you know, initiative. And yeah, it's going to be, um, it's going to be the government, it's going to be federal governments around the world. And then it's going to be a few people with the odd hundred billion dollars in their back pocket who can mm. fund this sort of thing. One one thing that we talk about in our, in our report and in, in this profile of space as a place of the future is, mm-hmm. again, if you're a techie kind of nerdy person, a STEM based math based person, and you're looking for a job, Mm-hmm. Just look at the job openings page on blueorigin.com, mm-hmm. Bezos's uh, space exploration company. I mean, there's hundreds of jobs there, mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of jobs. And in fact, not all technical jobs, jobs for lawyers, mm-hmm. <laughs> jobs for accountants, jobs for HR people, jobs for ops people, logistics people, mm-hmm. um, web designers. You know, um, again, that's going to be a huge wave in the next, certainly the rest of our lifetime mm-hmm. and the rest of anybody's lifetime that's listening or watching this now, if you can put your personal surfboard on that wave, you know, you're going to have a hell of a ride. Mm-hmm. Will the digital world, will it still have people becoming billionaires using, di- you know, creating digital businesses that sort of in a way seem to impoverish other people? Uh, say, say like Amazon putting all the mom and pop businesses out of business, you know, making things cheaper and easier to buy for consumers, but still a whole strat of society is left behind. Mm. Um, do you, are we still going to have, as we move forward and let's say we implement the changes that you suggest, can we still have digital billionaires doing stuff like space exploration or will it become more, uh, spread out the wealth or the, the yeah. benefits? No, I mean, again, our position is that, um, yeah, somebody, if somebody makes a billion dollars from a great idea, terrific. We're all for that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not, we're not uh, closet Marxists here saying that we've got to <laughs> shut this whole thing down. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're saying we've got to reform some aspects of what's going on at the moment mm-hmm. to, in fact, prevent some worst-case scenario of those people being left behind getting really angry and coming with their pitchforks mm-hmm. <laughs> to, yeah. to us all. Because when they do come with their pitch, pitchforks, they're not going to be able to distinguish between you or I mm-hmm. with our mere hundreds of thousands or whatever you've got, whatever I've got, mm-hmm. and those billionaires. We're all going to look the same to those guys. Right. So I think it behooves us. I think we have a motivation here to try and uh, – make sure we don't get to the kind of ugly uh, um, scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, we're not trying to suggest that, um, in fact, we, we very much believe and very much argue that if you can apply 
digital technology to whatever it is you do, that's probably the surest route to economic uh, success, economic security at the moment. Again, that notion of if you can, if you live in a zip code full of code, you're probably doing quite well. We want to get more people into that zip code and spread that digital opportunity, that digital technology, that digital skill. Mm-hmm. So people have the means of production and can do fabulous things. That's a kind of pro-innovation, pro-growth, pro-spreading wealth argument. Mm -hmm. But again, where we can see that a generation of people are are not sending the elevator back down when they've kind of got to the top of the uh, the penthouse suite, Mm -hmm. but in fact pulling that uh, you know the ladder up, if you like, mixing my metaphors here. Mm -hmm. That's what we're we're again calling out that we can't uh, you know we can't continue to do that. We can't continue just to see platform-based economics as people you know talk about in technology, Mm -hmm. just to soak uh, to 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 to, um, to soak up all the wealth and make it go up. I mean, again, we can see that happening a little bit, and uh, that's that's worrying. And again, hence why we're sort of uh, ringing this alarm bell. Does your book, um, this monster, address um, educating people so that that more and more people have the, the proper training and mindset to utilize digital tools and? Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Chris. And that's exactly what, you know, the book is about. It's exactly, frankly, what Cognizant is doing at the moment. We are committing a lot of money to um, $250 million mm-hmm. to exactly that, to support training and education-based programs around the world. Because ultimately, that is the answer. Every individual, every organization, every society that's risen through history has done that on the back of having, you know, an educated workforce or being an educated person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and ultimately, it's always been the case and it always will be that the greatest number of smart people win. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really the argument. You know, the, 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 the smartest people uh, and the most of them is, is how you're going to rise. So, yeah, we want to completely again, help and play a small part in helping Mm -hmm. to, again, point to people a vision of the future, to say where it's going a little bit wrong so we can get it back into into a a healthy spot and then help people to go on this journey. That's why we talk about jobs of the future. That's why we talk about places of the future. We're trying to help people to realize that this is an incredible moment in human history when technology is, is creating incredible opportunity, incredible wealth, improving a lot of aspects of society mm-hmm. uh let's get more people involved in that and ultimately we'll, we'll all benefit from that are there other um themes in the book uh, that we haven't touched on yet that you've- um yeah i mean there's a lot we've got uh, 10 very specific recommendations i mentioned a few of them earlier on you know the the notion of a federal technology agency mm-hmm. uh, uh repealing section 230 uh, banning anonymity, uh, having an age limit for uh, kids going on on the internet, mm-hmm. um, and then this manifesto idea, the golden rule, uh, protecting data, having data portability. We talk a little bit in the in the book about the work that Tim Berners Lee is doing. So uh, people who know Tim Berners Lee, the sort of original granddaddy of the World Wide Web, mm-hmm. he's, his new organization's got this thing called Solid. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe some people have heard of this. Very interesting to check this out. Uh, and it's this idea that rather than 
your code halo, your digital fingerprint that I talked earlier on about, your data being owned by the technology provider, Mm. you have a pod where your data is held Mm. and then you grant permission for Facebook or Google or Amazon to take data, appropriate controlled data out of that pod Mm -hmm. rather than them own that data on you. And um, so we talk about things like that. There's a lot of, a a lot of different ideas in the report Mm -hmm. um, and uh, people should check it out. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Okay. So you've mentioned, so tell me, so normally I ask, do you see any, um, any, fixes that could be easily implemented to help this along and you've mentioned you know a number of things uh are any of those like maybe i don't want to say a quick fix but are they more easily attainable or are there other things that people could do now yeah. to make things go better? um that's a great question i mean i think there aren't simple answers because these are complicated issues and if there were simple easy fixes i think probably we have had them by now um i think a lot of it comes from having people at the top of the political tree who understand what's going on again this is why we're calling for this idea of a federal technology agency mm-hmm. which mirrors the development and the introduction of the uh, the food and drug administration mm-hmm. um people know the the story of that in the 1920s in america mm-hmm. sort of came out of a number of health scares, uh, food, food-based scares, poisoning and um, issues in the food supply chain where people realized we couldn't allow this unregulated environment to continue. We needed to kind of have better regulations and rules to keep people safe. Mm-hmm. That's the parallel for now, 100 years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it really starts at the top, if you like, of having um, people who are not asking in senate hearings you know what's your business model well senator we sell ads Mm -hmm. you know if you remember that moment a few years ago uh when mark zuckerberg was on on being questioned by senators and he had to explain to a senator you know what the business model was that wasn't a very encouraging uh sign of somebody who in a very important political position would have enough knowledge to be able to craft these new rules of the road. They didn't really even understand what was going on in the road. Mm -hmm. So we need politicians. We need the political infrastructure to do that. So that's not easy, putting that in place. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, there are individual easier solutions that we can take. I mean, you you can use tools and technologies that don't share data so easily. Mm-hmm. People may know things like Signal. They may know things like DuckDuckGo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can begin to control your own personal uh, data more than uh, the vast majority of people are doing now. So I don't think it's anything easy, but it's going to be a combination of societal things, individual things legislative things but also attitudinal things Mm -hmm. Uh, and ultimately i think all of those uh elements have a role to play that's why we talk about them all because we're trying to you know as i said earlier on sort of provoke and prod and nudge people that this is a very important time in human history when sort of art the architecture of the future is being created and and we as individuals we as citizens we as people of goodwill, particularly people who love technology, 
uh, we've got to play in ro- a role in, in in shaping the future that we that we want. Now I have a bit of a lighthearted question. Um, a lot of scientists I talk to say that they um, they were motivated to get into science by Star Trek because of Star yeah. Trek. So I'm just curious. I think you're you're a Star Trek fan. Do you want to just quickly mention how that motivated you and and yeah, no, I was a huge tricky when I was a kid. Um, in fact, I was, I stumbled across, uh, the, is it 1984, the Search for Spock movie uh, on the TV last night. It looked terribly dated. And not, as, not as cool as I remembered. I think they, they went off the rails themselves a little bit, then, didn't they? Um, but no, the original, uh, the original Star Trek was fabulous. And I loved it. And, and I think what appealed to me, Chris, in a way, was that it wasn't so much about the the you know shoot 'em up kind of cowboys and Indians kind of style of George Lucas. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the kind of western in space or the Second World War movie in space that the Star Wars franchise is more about. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds pretentious, and maybe maybe I'm misremembering it, <laughs> but. To me, Star Trek, the original Star Trek, was more about ideas. Mm-hmm. It was almost, you know, for kids, young, young, young adults, it was almost a philosophical mm-hmm. show. It was asking big questions about freedom and, uh, you know, many of the questions we're asking now about freedom and control and, and how can people live together and how can we be good humans and how can we, how we, how can we, um, how can we make the world better? And I found that very, inspiring and interesting and um i think that show and then and uh space odyssey 2001 space odyssey Mm -hmm. which blew my mind when i saw it i read the book i read the arthur c Clarke book i suppose when i was about 14 or so i remember Mm -hmm. sitting in the garden one summer in england and reading that and just kind of going wow this is amazing Mm -hmm. um little did i know here's an interesting fact for you chris little did i know that i lived four miles from where that movie was shot oh <laughs> you, think, you think that's all in hollywood but there's actually a big sound stage in north london where i where i grew up and so kubrick was literally four miles down the road from where i was sitting in the garden and <laughs> this this amazing world which i thought was out there and i thought was in hollywood was if i'd only known i could have got on my bike and just ridden down and, <laughs> and seen it. Was that is it Pinewood Studios? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, So let me. So with your future futurist hat on, and also thinking about science entertainment, do you think the entertainment industry is doing enough or the right things to teach people about the future and technology, or is it just kind of scaremongering and myth making right now? That's that's a great great question. I and and. um, no, I think about that a lot. I mean, in fact, last night we watched um, we watched that movie Her. Do you hmm. know the one with Joachim jo- jo- Phoenix again, where he's uh, Samantha is his uh, uh, virtual assistant, and he falls in love with her. Yeah, it's a great movie, um, and it's interesting because that's seven years old now, and it, mm-hmm. if you remember, it did seem very science fiction, but it's now it's basically Alexa. <laughs> Siri, I mean, it's really come true in a kind of incredibly fast rate. Yeah. Um, one of the things we thought um, that it would be good if, you know, the industrial entertainment complex spent more time on mm-hmm. was creating role models 
for young people in STEM-based fields, in in technology-based fields. I, I can't help thinking that the surplus or the surfeit of doctors and lawyers that we've got now is because in the 80s there was some Elsewhere and ER and Boston Legal and all these medical shows and legal shows. Young people saw that. They thought, this is cool. I'll go into that area. The only sort of tech shows on TV today are kind of, they present young, they're nerdy young people, not particularly, almost figures of fun. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think if we could, if we could, and I've pitched this idea, proposed this idea to, a few people. It's ne- never seemed to have gone very far. Uh, maybe somebody's listening now that could do something about this. But if we could create role models for young people, showing them, you know, the cool things about you know, space and about AI and, and, and automation and quantum computing and mm-hmm. um, not just presenting this dystopian view that, that Star Trek, uh, that, sorry, that Hollywood tends to have because it's kind of the, the path of least resistance in, in a way, mm-hmm. but a more mm-hmm. nuanced view of, um, you know, there's, there's really cool things to be done here and very positive things to be done for society. I think that would be a good counterpoint to a lot of that kind of black mirror dystopia, which although I enjoy and is sort of fun, mm-hmm. it really only presents kind of one side of the story, if you like. Did you write your book because you saw more pessimism than optimism or just because there was too much pessimism? No, that's that's exactly the case, Chris. You know, when we wrote that last book, uh, What to Do When Machines Do Everything, we would go out and tell the story about AI and machine learning and, again, try to address this concern about automation, but uh, sort of provide a more positive counterpoint to that argument that, you know, 47% of jobs are going to be automated away by technology. But we, we realized uh, on on the road telling that story <laughs> back in the days when we could travel, mm-hmm. going you know, into boardrooms and big conference rooms, that these concerns are very real, very tangible, even amongst, you know, senior people in big businesses who uh, were sort of, uh, on the one hand, deploying these technologies, mm-hmm. but then on the other, quietly saying to us, well, Ben, what's my son going to do? You know, that sort of dichotomy was very real. Mm-hmm. And I think out of that uh, out of that sense of what people were interested in and that feedback that we were getting from that last book, that's when we really started thinking that um, whilst a lot of these technologies do have a lot of upside and individually can be quite benign, this sort of collision uh, was having, you know, a, a real and troubling impact. And, and that was really this notion of the monster that we were creating mm-hmm. unwittingly, perhaps. Uh, and then the notion of, well, you know, how do we tame it? How do we get, get on top of it? Is there as much pessimism like this in China or India? Do you know? That's a great question. I think I think it's pretty widely distributed, to be mm. honest, Chris. Yeah, okay. I mean, um, you know, Putin has famously said the country that controls AI is going to control the world. Mm. And, uh, you know, the Chinese understand that. I think the West has been a little slow to wake up to realizing that, but now is beginning to grapple with that. You saw the big Eric Schmidt 
report a couple of weeks ago on AI and national security being published. Mm. I think there is a concern, uh, certainly amongst uh, in India, uh, a lot of the sort of tech people there understand these trends and understand that that pace of automation is 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 accelerating, and that's both an opportunity and and a challenge to kind of the the traditional Indian labor arbitrage outsourcing based model, which you know Cognizant's obviously um, uh, benefit, benefited from and and, and uh, leveraged. Mm-hmm. So I think those the trends are universally understood. Um, Obviously, getting uh, a detailed read and in particularly China is hard. Mm. Um, so I, I, I don't, you know, I, I couldn't give you quite as clear a read on that, if you like, as I could of other parts of the world. But I think, I think people do understand the stakes in uh, at play here. How come Indonesia comes to mind? That has a huge population. Are they not huge players in the digital economy? Yeah, um, that's a very good point. Very good observation. I mean, there are certainly digital platforms, uh, comms channels, social social networks, payment models. You know, payment networks there mm-hmm. that are very digitally intensive and are becoming very very popular. But yeah, you're right. Indo- Indonesia is a huge population, um, not particularly connected into um, a lot of these discussions at the moment. Hmm. seemingly, but uh, no, I'm sure there are people there that are thinking about this sort of stuff as well. If, uh, and I just have a couple more questions. I'll wrap it up soon. Um, yeah. If the digital economy is more, if it becomes more of a national security issue for, or not just the economy, but, you know, advanced science and electronics, if it becomes yeah. a big security issue, that seems like, that's less of an opportunity for the world to come together on these issues, that there's going to be more division. Yeah, no, I think that's very, very true and, and, and troubling. Uh, going back to this notion of the splinter net, um, going back to concerns the West has at the moment about chip, chip fabrication in Taiwan and the future of Taiwan. Yeah, the future of this digital story is really the f- future of geopolitics. Mm-hmm. Um, just as, you know, uh, the geopolitics of the 15th and 16th century was all about, you know, how good were your sailing ships, how fast were your sailing ships, mm-hmm. how quickly could you get tea back to the UK or ammo out into Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um uh, the same is true now. What what are your digital supply routes? What are your digital information chains? What are your vulnerabilities within that? And the and the scary thing about what's going on in cybersecurity and and cyber geopolitics at the moment is is how much of it is completely hidden from view. Uh, not only just to us as civilians, but frankly, um, uh, I you know told on very good authority. Uh, by the players themselves. If you think back to the, the notion of MAD, mm-hmm. you know, back in the Cold War, mutually assured destruction, mm-hmm. you know, what kept the detente between the West and Russia at that time was a pretty good understanding of the capability of the other party. You know, both sides knew that the first strike was going to, you know, basically wipe both of them out. Mm-hmm. So that tension, even though it sort of flared up at times, Bay of Pigs and things like that, that tension was to a degree quite stable. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the same is not true at all of mutually assured 
digital destruction because we don't know the capability of uh, other parties around the world. They don't really know our capabilities. We don't really know the strength of our capabilities. <laughs> you know, it's been said, and I think this is in the public domain that uh, you know the West could basically turn off every street light outside of the West if it wanted to, you know, through things like Stuxnet. But what would that do? What would that create? The, the, the war games, if you like, the digital war games to understand the consequences, the first, second, third, fourth order consequences of doing things like that, we don't really know. Mm -hmm. And um, we've been trying to play defense against cyber attacks, you know, advanced persistent threats for a while now, mm -hmm. and it doesn't seem to be working. Um, one of the jobs of the future, <laughs> going yeah. back to that report we talked about, was a cyber attack agent, mm. uh, you know, inverting the sort of model that the West's got at the moment to just, just play defense, but to go on the attack and basically take out, you know, the capabilities of some of our opponents um but it's very very complicated and um again going back to that thought that there are political leaders who don't really understand the business model of the internet i, I think the same is true that there are political leaders and defense-based leaders who don't really understand the games the rules of this game that we're playing and and that's uh you know obviously very very troubling it seems that if you're if a country's population isn't digitally minded enough its leaders aren't going to be either and that yeah. might cause you know that country might fail <laughs> you know yeah no, no. again it's 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 troubling and and hence why this notion of a an fta federal technology agency or administration is important because we need to have people making these very important decisions who really understand in great detail what's going on mm -hmm. and I think the, the, the troubling answer is at the moment we don't. We, we have a generation of leadership, particularly senior leadership, who don't understand this game. Uh, and how can you craft rules and then police be the umpire of a game that you don't really understand? That just is nonsensical, frankly. Yeah. So we've touched on this, um, I think, a bit before. But what excites you? <laughs> Turning from that discussion, what excites you about the future? Oh, so so many things, so many things, Chris. Again, that's comes back to the opening line of the book. You know, we love technology, mm -hmm. and we completely believe in the power of technology to create, um, you know, positive outcomes. Uh, what excites me? The thing that kind of constantly blows my mind at the moment, or two things constantly blow my mind at the moment: people who are following the. Um, developments in quantum computing, mm -hmm. uh, peer-reviewed research coming out of Google, Alphabet, mm -hmm. uh, saying that they've developed quantum computing power that can process uh, a calculation in 200, in 200 seconds that would, it would take the fastest existing classical supercomputer 10,000 years wow. to process. So if you think about that acceleration, that exponential growth in the raw compute power of quantum, I mean, this is how we get into Star Trek. This is how we yeah. build Star Trek <laughs> and, and, and the future that you know, we've, we've seen in the movies. So that's super exciting and, and open up whole new vistas of medical research, um, research in materials, 
you know, quantum-based uh, materials uh, can have this uh, be a hundred times stronger than steel mm-hmm. and a hundred times lighter than a feather. Mm-hmm. So think about a quantum-based car, electric mm-hmm. vehicle. Think about, you know, uh, a car that's incredibly strong. Mm-hmm. Tiger Woods would like to drive that and incredibly light, what that would do for its power requirements. I mean, again, so that there are things like that which are super exciting. The other thing that we're big on, uh, we've written about, and in fact is another place of the future, is is the whole VR world, virtual reality world. Yeah. Um, we could talk again for another hour about that now. Is uh, We're on the cusp of opening up this new paradigm, yeah. a new place, uh, and we'll be having meetings like this, and we'll be doing interviews like this in a in a VR environment in a couple of clicks. Yeah. Uh, apparently, twenty percent of people in Facebook yeah. are working on VR-based projects now. Apple are rumored to be uh, readying a big VR and augmented reality launch for early next year. So, wow. again, that's super exciting to think about the possibilities, mm-hmm. of what we'll be able to do with that, the creative expression will be able to kind of manifest the the technical jobs creative jobs business jobs that will be opening up in a in a, a new place for the future and that's uh that's something we're excited about as well i imagine and in your book you mentioned people already becoming cyborgs i imagine with individuals could become almost superhuman like with the the knowledge and and materials they they might have access to and yeah. do, do we ethically and philosophically are we up to that challenge yeah well again that's why we have to ask these questions um people will know walter isaacson uh, and his new book about the uh, developers of crispr technology and mm. and this is the the question he asks you know in, in in that book is just the the ethics of doing uh cut and paste of, of human dna i mean mm. i've always thought that this notion that um quite well researched and quite well talked about that the on the spectrum of autism uh creativity is just a click away from from autism Mm -hmm. um and so if we take autism out of the human uh spectrum do we inadvertently and not understanding the consequence Mm -hmm. do we take creativity out of the human genome i mean so there are very big questions that we have to ask in questions like that. And and to your point about, you know, Elon Musk's Neuralink, this notion of a kind of digital brain interface. Again, it sounds exciting. It sounds, uh, you know, amazing. And it could open up huge uh, new areas for medical research for, as you say, for superhuman intelligence. But uh again in in this monster book we're sort of asking these questions that we we tend to rush into these phases of innovation and disruption and not really worry about the <laughs> thinking about it too much mm-hmm. and then we wake up a, a decade or so later like we've done with social media and young people with phones and and we sort of realize what we've done and and when the states keep on getting higher and higher changing the human genome interfering with with our very brains Mm -hmm. again that's why we're sort of saying people like us who love tech we've got to do this properly we're going to do this seriously we've got to think about this just rather than rushing in and breaking things moving fast and breaking things because we've seen what we've broken and and a lot of the stuff we've broken hasn't been particularly good 
So what projects are you working on right now that you'd like to mention? Well, obviously, we're out promoting this book, Monster, available at all good bookstores if they're open in your neighborhood and online. Uh, We're talking about this 21 Places of the Future report that we're just launching as well. Uh, People can find us at the uh, Center for the Future work at Cognizant pretty easily. And we're always writing, always talking, always, uh, you know, uh, sharing opinions about what's going on. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's uh, that's what we're up to, Chris. So, what's the website for listeners and viewers? Can you? So it's uh, just um, uh, cfow.com, Center for the Future Work.com. Just put that into your browser; you'll find it pretty easily. Can, can you spell that letter for letter, just so I get it right? Yeah. So, so www.cognizant.com forward slash futurework.com. Okay. Okay, and Cognizant is... Cognizant is C-O-G-N-I-Z-A-N-T. Okay, all right. Just to make it easy for people. No, no, thank you. All right, Um, well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any uh, parting thoughts or words? No, thanks, Chris. Great talking to you. Enjoyed the conversation. You too. Thank you. I appreciate your time, taking your time. In the next episode, I speak with Barbara Scalvini about how the ideas of Aristotle were transmitted through the medieval and Renaissance ages. Space Dock, the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Technology and Space. If you want daily book suggestions for new science, technology, space, history, and space, please check out my YouTube channel, Spacewalks Money Talks, my podcast, Technology and Space, and my website, technologyandspace.com. If you're looking for new military and general history information and books, Check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com, my YouTube channel, War Scholar, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you're looking for new fiction and nonfiction books on sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, and more, please check out my YouTube channel, Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd, my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews, and my webpage, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Thank you for listening.